Magic.me is the world's greatest school for magic, meditation, and mysticism. You can learn everything there from chaos magic to hermeticism to meditation to how to supercharge your finances and take absolute control of your destiny. In short, you get all of the tools you need to turn chaos into beautiful, scintillating order and master your life. It's incredible. You've probably heard me talk about it on the show quite a lot, but check it out. It's growing fast. And I just want to say, if you're confused about where to start, because I have so many courses there, the Adept Initiative is the place to go. The Adept Initiative is the flagship course on magic.me, and it contains everything you need to know to master the most profound ancient techniques of changing your consciousness and the most modern and cutting edge tools and systems for absolutely turning your life into a masterpiece. You are really going to dig it. Go check it out, and I will see you in class. It's magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. So welcome to the podcast. Yes, hello. Um, Please tell us a bit about, uh, maybe just give us the elevator pitch on your book and then talk about who you are, please. Sure. Uh, so my name is Anne-Marie. I hail from the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont, about 30 minutes south of the Canadian border. And um, my book is Death Nesting. I am a death doula <clears throat> and I'm a death doula educator. So I work with people who are dying and I build a community around them. Um, to really support everything that's going to unfold in this sacred space. And when I when I first began doing this work as a hospice volunteer and in residential care as a nurse assistant, and um, I was the director of Meals on Wheels, and I, I realized that I had a certain amount of information that was very basic, but that a lot of people didn't know. And so I felt an urgency to get the information out as quickly as possible to as many people as possible. And that was really the mission behind writing the book. Um, there are lots of really beautiful books on death and dying out there, but I hadn't found any that were just really basic care, like literally how to change somebody's sheets when they're in bed and they're, they're not moving. They're not able to move. Um, and then, of course, also incorporating in some of the spiritual aspects, which are often left out of the medicalization of the, the dying process that we're so so used to now. So um, I wrote Death Nesting, the heart-centered practices of a death doula, in hopes that uh, people would find it very relatable, not very heady, not very you know, overly spiritual, some, something that people really um, can relate to. So how did you end up in this line of work? Did you feel called to it? Were you expecting this or did it kind of fall upon you? Mm -hmm. I, um, I, I, my first experience with, with working with somebody who was quite elderly was my grandfather who had Alzheimer's and he lived with us in the house. And so I had some experience from that as a child and he was actually the first dead body that I ever saw and got to touch um, which I realized now after years of doing this work that a lot of people have never seen 
a dead body. Um, and, and those that do, it's oftentimes very traumatic, not necessarily something gentle or that feels natural. Um, so those were my, and I, I had some nice experiences with death as, as a child and as a teenager, but what really drew me to this work as uh, an adult is I was, I was a, an event coordinator and a music manager. So I oh, okay. was coordinating. Yeah. Very, I was coordinating. very different. What's that? Very different line of work. Yes completely different. I was coordinating um, music festivals and fashion shows and weddings. And I always wanted the event to be bigger and better. And I wanted people to be more happy and I wanted it to be more exciting. And little by little, I started feeling more and more empty at the end of the night. And I was like, no, this, this isn't it. Like, what am I, what am I trying to do? What am I after? And one night after a fashion show, I was Driving home, I live, as I said, in Vermont, and uh, it was only about 20 degrees outside, and I saw an, a man sleeping on a bench outside, and I saw he had a walker next to him, and I thought, wow, who, you know, who's this homeless, unhomed man? And so I pulled over to talk to him, and I saw that not only did he have a walker, but he had a catheter that was attached to him as well that was hanging from his walker. And uh, I talked with him for a minute. It was 11 p.m. And found out that he was 89 years old. Uh, and I said, would you like to come home with me? <laughs> and he said, yes. And I was like, come on. So he came home with me. And um, he he just spent that one night. You know, I, I hid my knives in the house just in case he got a sudden urge to. I didn't know this man at all. Um, and, you know, I was living by myself at the time. My, my children were at their father's house. So I, through that one night of just reaching out to him, I ended up developing a relationship with him. And I cared for him through his his dying process, um, and in and out of hospitals. And, um, and you know, he still lived on the streets. He did not want a, a home. He didn't, he wanted someplace to go when he was cold, but he didn't want to be tied down to any one place. So there was a lot of learning that happened here, not just caring for somebody who was older, who had the regular challenges, mobility challenges, and, um, just aging, an aging body and a, a dying body, but also the fact that the way that he wanted to die and live his life was nothing like what I wanted for myself. And so it was really hard to to understand that I can't force somebody into a particular way of uh, feeling meaning of of being comfortable. And so there was there was a really big growth period and um, after that, I switched directions completely. I gave up events and I went into, as I said, um, uh, nurse assistant training and hospice training and, um, yeah, and worked in residential care. Interesting. And then, so what was that process of going from there to becoming a death doula? Yeah, that was, uh, it, there are still a lot of people that don't really know what a death doula is. And at the time, 
I didn't either. I was doing a Google search. I was like, what else am I going to do to, to build upon this education without going to nursing school? I didn't want to become an RN. And I came across a death doula and I thought, well, that's interesting. <laughs> um, and really what a death doula is, is it's, it's just a new term um, for something that is very ancient. It is very normal. People have always been caring for the dying. People have always helped usher life in and people have always helped usher life out. Um, so the term death doula is new, but the work is nothing new. Hmm. So what is that work? Mm. So it, it can be any, any number of things. It's, um, I really try to emphasize that people focus on what feels natural to them if they want to care for the dying. So a, a loose definition would be a non-medical holistic caregiver. Of course, that tells you everything and nothing. <laughs> so you could help with people's end-of-life paperwork. Um, you could simply be a respite caregiver. So when the family needs a break, you could come in, you could be educating and teaching the family as they go along so that the family understands how to care for their loved one. A lot of times it's simply telling people that, um, the effort that they are making is worthwhile, that they are doing it right, that it's okay to not know the answers. A lot of times it's just telling people that the dying situation is okay, okay. even though it feels really terrible. And, and so, yeah, how does that go for people? I mean, I have a lot of questions and I have a, a lot I want to say, but um, what is your experience with people working through just that, that part of it? Yeah. Do you mean, um, as the person who's dying or as the caregiver? Um, I guess working with people to get to a place of acceptance. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, on both sides, sometimes acceptance is, is never achieved. Um, you know, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross came up with that beautiful system of, of the stages of, of grief, but um, they're so incredibly intertwined and there's no rhyme or rhythm and there's no way to categorize or isolate any one feeling or, or emotion. Um, and I just bring that up because the word acceptance is, is commonly used and yet, mm, you know, not it's, so much. Yeah, it's, it's hard. And it's almost like instead of acceptance, you know, people can get to that place, but it's, it's less like acceptance and more like almost falling apart and being okay with it. Hmm. What would, Do you it, know what, I mean? what would an example be? Um, almost like almost from exhaustion. I find that people, when they try and they try and they try to hold things together and they try to keep their emotions in check and they're trying to make sure the person's not in pain and all of that can feel like non-acceptance sometimes. It can feel rigid. And I think that sometimes what it takes is actually um, leaning into vulnerability and leaning into the sorrow and then and kind of just falling apart. And, and sometimes even a laugh might come out. You might think, oh, okay. And you almost throw up your hands. So 
it's, um, I don't know how to say, instead of it being like an active form of acceptance, it's almost like a reactive form, like a, um, well, a falling apart and that that's okay. Hmm. It really has struck me throughout my life how unprepared Americans are for this experience and well, all human beings, because we're all afraid of it and we all have to face it. And, you know, as I, as I get older, it becomes more and more real and, uh, as I'm sure it does for everyone. So, um, but the, your comment about people not seeing ever having seen a dead body. Yeah. I think that the biggest flaw of America is its healthcare system and, a and a tangential part of that is the fact that people are death is hidden from people like it's swept under the carpet and you travel in other places in the world and that's not the case i mean it's like you go to india you go to uh, i'm sure parts of mexico all, all, all over the world and not only is death or asia you know like death is more um out in the open um india you just see dead bodies everywhere everywhere but but i don't necessarily just mean that i mean better practices with the family the a more extended family experience, which we usually don't have in the U S. Um, so when people come to see you, let's put it that way. Um, I'm guessing they're pretty unprepared. And what is that like? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that depends. Everything you said, I, I really agree with, and we have completely isolated death. So, um, the only way that it shows up for us now is in movies and social media and, um, you know, horrible things, mass shootings. And those are the kinds of um, deaths that people talk about and not so much the ones that are just gentle and kind almost, you know, like, right. like the really good ones that um, those are the ones that are hidden. Those are behind closed doors. Those are in nursing homes and residential care. Um, so as far as people, when they come to me, it's, it's a couple of different things. Sometimes people will come to me because their family member, they want their family member to quote unquote deal. <laughs> they mm -hmm. want their mom or dad to do their paperwork. They want their you know, so they kind of come to me to try to get me to convince somebody else to do the work. And I always say to them, you know, okay, that's, I understand. Have you done your paperwork? <laughs> and that usually stops them right in their tracks because they haven't. And the reason I tell them to do that is because doing end of life paperwork, thinking about end of life, um, making plans, it doesn't feel good. It feels terrible. There's something that is really jarring in that. Um, and, and so it's good if you're going to try to convince somebody else to do that work that you had done it yourself actually okay. so that you can relate. And it, it, and it comes, then they come from a very different standpoint. And then it's almost like a collaboration, like Hey, let's work on this together. Okay. What would you like to do? This is this is what I think I would like to do. Um, and then sometimes people will come to me. I mean, I'm called a death doula. So by the time somebody admits that they want to talk to a death doula, they are at a stage where they're like, okay, what do you do? Um, so 
so we can we can go from there and and sometimes people don't know what they want they um they'll call me up and and they're kind of confused because you know going through the dying process whether you're um older elderly terminally ill and younger it's all confusing because of all of the medical appointments all of the expectations your own pain level your own fears your own anxieties and so sometimes people they'll see, you know, the name death doula and say, yes, I, I want to talk to a death doula, but have no idea why or what one might do for them. And that's totally fine. So then one of the questions I ask is when you reached out to me, what did you imagine that I'd be able to help you with? And then the conversation can get going from there. Mm. And, you know, in the end, a lot of people, they just want to have a normal conversation with somebody. They want to have a conversation with somebody that's not overly emotional um, because it has, you know, integrated sometimes integrated into them as part of their, I was going to say daily thoughts, but you know, hourly minute by minute thoughts and conversations. And they don't always want to have um an emotional response to what is being said. So sometimes just talking is this huge relief. Okay. You mentioned a good death. What for you constitutes a good death? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. Do you mind? Can I turn it on you? Can you, what, what do you imagine for a good death? Well, I'm not a death doula and I don't work (laughs) with dying people for a living. So I don't know. Okay, good. If you want later and anybody listening to this, it's a really good thing to contemplate because everybody's view is completely different. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, a good death for me would be, I would be very old. um, And if there's pain, I would like it to be tolerable or manageable without excessive medication. I'd like to be awake for my, for my dying process. Um, I would like to have said goodbye to the people that I wanted to say goodbye to and tell the people that I love, thank you. And, you know, so it's pretty simple. I'd like to be, I mean, I could get really detailed. I'd like to be in my bed. I would like the sunlight on my face. I would like maybe a cat next to me. (laughs) So, so would you say that a good death for, for, um, a good death is somebody dying in the way that they wanted to. That's right. Okay. That's right. Because for okay. somebody else, it might be skydiving. <laughs> Not They're me. They're like, no way, man. Like, <laughs> I want to die doing what I love. I'm going to jump out of a plane. And that's perfect. <laughs> okay. Do people do that? They don't... <laughs> well, if they don't, they really should. People should get more creative as, as they're nearing the end of life. <laughs> you just got to worry about what they fall on, you know? Um, yeah. <laughs> it's just like someone's farmhouse. Um, okay. So what do you think people can do? Because, you know, it's like kind of, it, it, it strikes me. And I talk to a lot of people on my podcast that are in the situation to one degree or another, not, not the same one that you're in, but in a situation where what they do for a living is what other people actively try to not think about. And this is probably the most extreme version of that um, because we all try to pretend that that isn't real. Um, Did you see the Barbie movie, by the way? 
By I any have chance? Not. Oh, it's so good. No, there, <laughs> I don't want to spoil it, but there's this hilarious part in the beginning where like everybody's like having this huge like dance routine, and then Barbie all of a sudden is like, "Does anyone ever think about dying?" And like a record needle scratches, <laughs> and everyone yeah. is like, "What are you talking? Get her out of here!" And I felt like that was very, very, uh, very uh, on point. Uh, it was very funny. So, what can people do to? prepare for this experience, which we're all going to have to face and which we're all afraid of. I mean, I don't care what people say and, um, you know, which we've invented religions to try and soothe ourselves. We've, we've told ourselves all these stories to try and make it okay, but we don't know if any of those are true or not. I mean, they're just stories. So, you know, it's like that finality. What can people do, do you think, to prepare themselves for that experience in a healthier manner? Particularly because I just think it's unhealthy that we hide it. So by the time you get there, you just don't know what to expect, I would imagine. Yeah, that's such a good question. So no matter when and how your death comes, it's not going to feel fantastic unless <laughs> you're in a tremendous degree of pain and then it's absolute bliss. Just because you're I mean, doped up? No, to the release to oh, get the release. out of your okay. body. You, you, you're saying that from observing people who are dying. I'm correct. Okay. I have not yet done the act. Um, I, I just mean like you're like people are in extreme pain, and then you see a, re a relief. Yes. Okay. Yes, yeah. and and even I mean I'm very sorry to say, but some people are begging to die. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that I've, I've, ex I've, I've experienced that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It uh -huh. it doesn't feel good to talk about or to even acknowledge, but it very very much is. It does happen. Yeah. Um, so aside from that, aside from those that um, are just ready to go, you know, they're old and they're just ready to go or the, their illness has, has really weighed on them for so long that they're ready to go. But for the most part, a lot of other people just don't want to die. Yeah. Even if their life is not perfect, not beautiful, they just don't want to die. Yeah. And, and why? I mean, we could go way deep into that. But um, so I think just acknowledging, like tapping into that, and you, you won't know what it truly deeply feels like until you get a scary diagnosis or until you are really confronted in some way. Um, but little things that can be done are just truly deeply appreciating um living, <laughs> which would be, and I'm talking about really basic things, the ability to smell, the ability to open and close your eyes at will, the ability to move your bowels, the ability to get up and walk across the room. You know, these things that um, we take for granted. And it's not until you break your ankle that you're like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I miss walking. So it oftentimes takes the extreme contrast yeah. um, to be able to really acknowledge that. And so, therefore, I think um, hormetic stress practices can be really good, like putting yourself through intentional um, emotional or physical challenges so that you get that contrast and get the appreciation without actually having to be confronted with death. That's so, interesting. Yeah. So, um, you know, I don't know. Have you ever cold plunged before? I have. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Cold plunging. You, it is so disturbingly uncomfortable. And then you get out and you, you have this rush of like, oh my God, I feel incredible. Now that's a contrast. That's something that you can, can work with and understand. And you practice, you're using your mind, you're a meditator, mm-hmm. you're, you're using your mind to, um, really calm yourself in a very uncomfortable situation. That practice will be helpful for you on your deathbed. Okay. So that leads me into a question that I'm going to ask that is a little controversial and, and, uh, probably not what want people want to hear, but, um, I take it from the books behind you and the Alex Gray painting that you are of a spiritual bent, right? You are interested in spiritual things. Um, I'm just going to ask this straight out. We have, there are tons of spiritual practices that people do. There's Buddhist practices, there's psychedelics, there's meditation, like you've mentioned, and you've met, mentioned that meditation is helpful, but in the, at the highest level, do you actually think that any of this stuff helps at people actually prepare for the death experience? Like when, when the chips are down, do you think that spiritual stuff act or psychedelics or whatever it is that like, cause you, I've many times in my life, I paid lip service to this stuff and I've said, well, I'm not afraid of death cause I had so-and-so experience, but like, really? Like, let's see when it comes time. So, um, how much of that do you think is actually valid in that moment? Yes. That's a really good question. I'm glad you're brave enough to ask it. <laughs> A lot of people are not brave enough to ask. Okay. Well, shit, if if we're going to die, we might as well pack the right stuff, right? It's it's a pretty important (laughs) thing to do. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. Uh, Bearing in mind that everything that you can pack is nothing physical. So that said, yes, I believe meditative practices are um, are very beneficial, but I would say from working with people, from what I've seen that just meditators who work in a, who practice in a controlled environment, I'm not positive, although I've seen some, some beautiful deaths from practitioners, but if you are only meditating with your mind in a regulated environment, I'm not sure how much that's going to help you. Oh, interesting. So you're saying you need to be meditating in like a chaotic environment? some stressful environment. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So for instance, like the cold plunge work with your mind then. Okay. Um, and so interesting. And, and like I said, I have seen practitioners have immensely beautiful deaths. Um, but those are people who have dedicated their lives to this and, you know, not everybody has time to dedicate their, their life to all of the, the Buddhist practices. Um, and not just Buddhist, um, people who really truly deeply believe that they're going to God can have a really beautiful death. They know it, they feel it, they're, they're doing it. Um, so those things are possible, but I think because of the amount of, unknown groundlessness, um, and potentially pain Mm -hmm. that being able to have recognized, um, if you've done it before, it's going to be easier to practice it again. So Mm. amidst some kind of safe kind of pain, um, 
um, some kind of really uncomfortable environment that you are in and you have to watch your thoughts and you've got to, you've got to work with your mind. So I think that there are some beautiful ways that it definitely will help. Um, as far as lighting some incense and just telling people you're a meditator, no, <laughs> sorry, you're screwed. Right. <laughs> that's, that's not the same thing. Um, thank you for sharing. Yeah. That's very profound. That Thank you for sharing. That feels like a really powerful key, what you just shared. Yeah, thank you. Um, <clears throat> and then psychedelics. Yes, um, the one that I have found the closest two was bufo i don't know if you have tried bufo is that toad toad dmt yep okay Mm -hmm. no i haven't toad medicine um i like toads too much to to ruin their day (laughs) (laughs) oh i know i know the synthetic version is coming i do believe okay um so that i think is the closest that i will get to a death experience while i am living um, people have vastly different experiences, um, some very, you know, extreme traumatic to total elation, freedom, you know, ultimate bliss to, um, laughing hysterically, like all kinds of things. But, um, I have, I have found benefit from that. That's interesting. So, so you think that's not hype? Um, no, I don't think so. A friend of mine says that he thinks that every death doula should try Bufo. Okay. <laughs> I won't well, go that far. I haven't, I haven't tried Bufo, but I, I will say that, you know, the, one of the most profound experiences of my life in which I, uh, um, felt that I had lost a fear of death was on five NN DMT. So pretty close. And, um, yeah. it certainly, and that had long, that had permanent, uh, it had a permanent effect. But then again, I mean, it's like, you know, people, I think, go through the psychedelic experience and then they say, or, or a spiritual experience, and you hear them use language like, oh, I've died before I've died, or now I know what it is to die. It's like, okay, but do you really? Because you're still alive and you just had a drug trip. That's not the same as dying. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know. No, and it's, and it's really not. And you bring up a very good point, which is that you chose to do that in your environment, on mm. your time, on mm. your you know, in your own way. And so that alone, oh, hell no. You know, you may have had some kind of like mind separating experience, but that is nothing like the dying um, process that most of us will go through. So there are, of course, um, sudden deaths, um, which, I mean, obviously you, you, you don't choose these so they're still different in that way but some people will die of a heart attack instantly some people will die in a car accident in, uh, instantly those kinds of things and so um that could be that kind of instantaneous um release but still you know psychedelics can only go so far and i i do not think that they're the be all end all um yeah, cure for, for, for anything yeah death. no yeah no. Yeah. So talk about the actual, well, okay. I have two questions. The first one is you said you witnessed some really beautiful deaths from practitioners. What does that look like? Oh my gosh. When they are able to keep talking, um, it's almost as if all of, um, the, 
the beautiful things that you read about from the texts. I mean, not not the bardo, not not um, the state of in between, but like the the total bliss, the the earthly bliss, the um, just the separating from the body can be described in a way that is so beautiful that it sounds exciting. <laughs> it's like wow, and when I listen to that, I think oh my gosh, this is like, we're all so fortunate. Like if, if we can get our, our, our mind to the place where we can, um, just kind of fall into a gentle death, like just fall into the transition, um, that it is profoundly beautiful. So it is, it is possible. Um, Hmm. well, life goals. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, talk about the moment of death. What occurs at the actual moment of death? Mm-hmm. You're asking good questions. Um, well, these are, thank you. But you know, these are, it's not every day you get to have this conversation. So it's like, <laughs> I'm trying to make a count here. <laughs> okay. What happens at the moment of death? Well, I, have never been there. So I can't tell you exactly from first person, um, point of view, but from the people that I have worked with, um, you know, it is, it's really, really difficult to tell what's going on because most of the time they're nonverbal. Um, you hear like some, some incredible stories about uh, who is the guy who, who, founded Apple. Steve Jobs. Yeah. Didn't he like say, wow, or something like his last word. That was allegedly Timothy Leary, although I I don't know if it's, yeah, I might be wrong. I might be wrong. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. But, but there are, so there are some isolated stories where people are still speaking, like still saying something on their way out the door. But, um, that's funny. I said that on the way out the door. So a lot of times there are um, these images that come to people and they say, um, I'm looking for the door or um, I have the key or where is the key? So they're looking for something. Um, a lot of times there are visitations from um, deceased loved ones and they'll say, my mother is here or, you know, Joey, can you hear me? Is that you? And Joey has been dead for 50 years. Um, so those are really common, uh, really common occurrences. Um, and then, and then in the moments, like when, when the breathing stops, it can, it can startle you actually because the breathing can stop and a minute could pass and two minutes and three minutes. And then all of a sudden there's a big gasp. Oh, geez. And then everybody in the room. <laughs> is like, okay. um, so <clears throat> there's, it's, um, there's this fullness. So I'll speak from my perspective. Now the, the room becomes very, very full. It feels um, almost thick with kind of energy thick with, um, a kind of awareness that is not like anything you typically see or feel. Um, and it's funny because not everybody always feels like that. 
some people do. The people who do are just frozen in awe and they're, you know, like, do you feel that? And then other people are like, okay. And they grab their purse and they're out the door. Um, and, but some people do feel it. Some people are aware of it. It feels like um, you commented on Alex Gray. It, he has done some some work where there's eyes everywhere, mm-hmm. like just eyeballs everywhere. And honestly, that is what it feels like. It feels like oh. something somewhere is aware. <laughs> wow. Have you ever experienced anything in, in this line of work, in working with dying people, that has struck you as uh, indicative of any type of afterlife or any type of supernatural thing going on at the moment of death, or is it completely not that, is that completely not the case? Definitely. Um, so there, uh, strange things happen. Um, not all the time, not, not every single time, but, um, (laughs) one time, um, I was present at a death Uh, and we all were in the room and just kind of paying homage. Her body was dead and we had just cleaned her and it was something like somebody had a question. I wonder if, and I won't say the woman's name. I wonder if she would want this to be done. And the phone rang (laughs) and I went over and picked I'm the death doula and the, you know, the others were gathered around. So I was the one who went to go get the phone. I picked up the phone and there was nobody there. And I said, hello, hello. And we all just kind of looked at each other and we all knew it was just a consensus. We we're like, that was her. <laughs> it was eerie. What do you mean that very, was her? And very real. I'm sorry. What, what do you mean that was her? That, that phone call was her. The that person that was dying? That had died, yes. Oh, oh, she had already died. Okay. Yeah, she had already died. Wow. Um, and that was, you know, I, I didn't even say anything because when, I, when I'm when i with people, I usually don't tell them what my spiritual ideas or beliefs are. I just let the family or the friends just do it as they will. So I didn't have to say it. I was like, I just hung up the phone and somebody said, who is that? And I said, there was nobody there. And everybody looked at each other and I'm like, I don't even have to confirm that everybody, it was just a a general acknowledgement. Um, there are things like that, that happen often. Um, but like I said, not all the time. Um, and, and the thing is that people, Sometimes people will say things like, you know, I have a code word. They're supposed to say, you know, blue pineapple or, or whatever it is like this is going to come back and this is a code word. And we have this agreement. So when this person dies, they're going to say this and I'm going to know it's them and whatever. Um, And as far as I understand, the dead don't really work like that. Um, That, that, that's kind of far fetched and, and, any, any, um, anyone who's on spirit side only has, you know, limited abilities and what they can actually share or do. So, okay. So you're talking, so you mentioned spirit side. What do you mean by that? Mm -hmm. So I do believe that, um, I, I mean, I still haven't even figured all of this out myself, but I have had visitations from people that I have worked with before. Um, 
I've known things before from deceased people that I really shouldn't know. Like there's no way I would have possibly known such things. And it's only very recently that I've started even admitting that to myself because it makes me a little bit like, oh, Emory, are people going to think you're crazy? <laughs> but um, it got to the point where I was like, no, I'm going to you know, call myself crazy if I don't actually admit that this is happening. So I do believe that sometimes people on spirit side do have something to say. I, I believe that they don't necessarily go far away. So, so you would say you do believe in, or, or you suspect some type of afterlife or existence after death? Yeah. So that's a good question because, um, to, to say then that there's an afterlife, how, what, what is it that goes on living? I don't know what, what bit of, um, where do they go? You know, I think of the movie, um, what is that cute movie? Coco. Like, I don't think it's like that. I don't think it's like a, a, a party of ancestors, like in this village in the sky. <laughs> but I do think that just the deceased, that spirit has the ability to make contact with us and where they go after. I don't know when they're not here. Who knows? But mm. I think that they show up. Yeah. Interesting. Let's say, let's just say as a figure of speech, just as a thought experiment, let's just say that death is a test. Okay. Now let's say I wanted to utterly fail that test as hard as possible. What would I do? Okay. You get the prize for podcast interviewers. All right. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, okay. I would say that I would start off with there is no failed way. But I would also say that the most disturbing way, I think, is to just go out kicking and screaming. Um, and yet maybe that's like that's what you have to do. <clears throat> like, who am I to, to to judge anything like? You know, <clears throat> it can feel good. Those of us like death doulas, those of us who are helping people die, we want them to quote unquote surrender. We want them to have a nice, peaceful um, release from their body. But maybe they've, you know, if anybody believes in reincarnation, maybe they've done that a hundred thousand times already. And this time they want to go out kicking and screaming. <laughs> they want to, you know, grab on with their nails and stay here as long as they can. So who am I to say that that wasn't the right way to do it? It, it prompts another controversial, disturbing question in my mind, which is, um, um, so you were saying that, and we do have this attitude culturally. It's like we should help the the, the people who are dying to to accept. I, I, I even said earlier in the interview to come to a place of acceptance or to let go um, and to go peacefully and quietly. And I just thought when you were saying that, is that for them or is that for us? That's right. That's exactly. Um, you know, I, I wrote about in the book Death Nesting, I wrote that um, a gentleman that I was working with was so confused while he was really actively dying and, and actively dying can mean a great deal of things. It can be three weeks before death. It can be two minutes before death, you know, so there's, there's a really big window there, but he was in and out of um, awareness of what had been going on. He had multiple trips uh, to multiple hospitals, emergency trips and um, like, 
chemotherapy and radiation and uh, illness after illness was getting stacked up. And he still had told the hospital staff that he wanted everything to be done to save him. And um, his family was saying, you know, really, do you want everything to be done? Like if you die, you want the hospital staff to bring you back to life again? And he said, yes. And that was kind of disturbing for everybody, the hospital, the, the doctors, the, the family. So you mean he wanted to be resuscitated while brain dead? Yeah, he wanted to be resuscitated. He wanted just, he, he trusted the medical system. The medical system had saved him from multiple heart attacks, had um, always, you know, come through for him. And so he was expecting a miracle, something to come through at any moment. Um, but this was, it, the odds were really deeply stacking. I, I wouldn't say against him, but it, toward the, the, the side of death coming soon. And, um, so I did this practice where, um, I was working with his unconscious and, and trying to help him understand all of these things that had been happening to him to help him get a little clarity because he was very confused. And I did that the night before, um, he had this very big doctor's appointment and the family said after that, um, at that doctor's appointment, he was clearer than he ever had been before. He was recalling um, his condition. He was recalling the trips to the back and forth to the hospital. He's recalling all these really helpful things. And he still wanted everything to be done to save his life. And then I said, well, perfect. Then my job's done. And I told the family, that's what he wants. Now it can't be blamed on, oh, he's confused. Hmm. No, actually he's not confused. And this is just the way he wants to do it. So that's really important work for death doulas and, and just in, for life in general, for just, you know, being a good human. You can't always, you know, put your values on other people. They're going to do it their own way. Yeah. Um, particularly in that moment where it's kind of like, you know, whatever your values were, they're tested to the, that's what they're for. That's what they're there for. Basically. Um, there was an article that went around maybe 10, 15 years ago. That was very famous. That was a viral, whatever that was, I'm sure you've seen it. That was like top five regrets of the dying. Um, oh, yeah, there, there are a few of those, but yeah, is that, was that kind of an accurate thing? Like, do you, do you have people expressing regret? Oh yeah. There's regret. There's guilt. There's shame. Um, resentment, you know, resentment is a hard one, but when people are dying, um, and they didn't get to accomplish the things that they wanted to accomplish or their, um, the people in their own age group are living life grand and they're dying, you know, cause it's not, Obviously, you know, younger people die as well. So there can be resentment, um, shame, guilt. You know, if people like if somebody is a lifelong smoker and then um, they're dying of lung cancer, there can be a lot of guilt that, you know, that they brought the lung cancer on by smoking. Um, and, yeah, all of those feelings come up. So. And those are really hard, and which is why I, I try to work with people to, 
you know, I work with the dying, but honestly, my work is almost better spent working with the, the younger and healthy so that they can get to a point when it's their dying time that they don't have this huge stack of um, resentments and sorrows and, and regrets because working with people to have a quote unquote good death or, or someplace that feels comfortable for them at the end of life. If I'm just meeting them at the end of their life, they may have 30 or 80 years of history of, of um, things that they have to work through. And, and that's, that's hard. So I'll, I'll definitely be there for them. And I definitely try to help them find some degree of comfort and release and self-forgiveness. Uh, that's a really big one. But these are things that, uh, that really our society should be embracing and encouraging. Yeah. yeah. So in the Bardo, which you've mentioned, the Bardo teachings, they, they have all that stuff about your state of mind at time of death determines kind of your afterlife and your next life experience. What I was going to ask is, um, we've talked a little bit about afterlife stuff. We're talking now about very negative emotions at end of life. Do you have any, um, how do I put, well, I'll just ask it straight out. Like, do you have any, um, experience or feelings that there is some negative afterlife experience, like that there is some place you can go after you die. If you don't work through these things or you have done bad things or you haven't let go or whatever it is that these religions talk about, um, that that is a thing that is a possibility. Whoa, that's, um, I wouldn't presume to even have an inkling, but um, I would guess that it has really to do with your state of mind. So, you know, I do believe in that to some degree. Um, you know, are people going to hell? I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> I don't think, I think we get absorbed back into universal energy, universal love. I, I really do. But, and I do think that your, um, where your mind is, um, not necessarily at the moment of death, but where your mind has been for the, for the duration of your life, um, I think would impact your experience, um, directly, directly after death. But I, ultimately I feel like everybody gets absorbed into the love. Hmm. So you've never seen the devil show up to claim someone at the last moment. <laughs> Not so much. Not so far. No. Okay. Um, yeah, I ask it just because, you know, a lot of spiritual people, uh, you know, I, I really have been of the opinion for a long time that convincing people that there's some type of hell they, that they're going to go to after they die. And that's not just Christianity. It's also Buddhism and Hinduism, all these religions, uh, not all of them, but quite a lot of them. Um, is just a form of abuse. You know, it's like, it's like a form of intergenerational abuse and trauma that's been perpetuated for God knows how long. And so I think a lot of people, at least in my experience who are spiritual are kind of trying to get away from that punitive, um, you know, depiction of what life is, what the universe is, that there's some type of vengeance that's going to be, uh, meted out against you, which is just a horrible, um, but, and yet 
I think we all have in the back of our minds, like, well, what, 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 well, what if, cause we don't know for sure. You know, it's like, well, there's like, and I don't care. You could be like the most like dedicated, um, I don't know, atheist or whatever. It's like, I, I guarantee somewhere back in there, there's probably like, well, you, what if, you know? Yeah. 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 Of, you know, of course it's because we have absolutely no idea at all. And I know that I, in my own mind, I have found, um, the most amount of hell and the most amount of peace regardless of my external situation. And I know that from other people's experiences too, which is, um, just, and, and I, so I do, I do believe in, in the power of mind and you, it doesn't mean that you have to be, um, highly educated and have these really profound thoughts and have, it just means like, um, can you access a place of okayness and can you hold that place of okayness? Hmm. And I, and I really think that, um, that it's not going to do you any harm to find that place of okayness. Sure. <laughs> How has working with dying people changed how you view life and how you approach it? The, ba- the biggest ways. I'm sure it's changed like everything, but like the biggest, the biggest ways. Yeah, absolutely. Everything. Absolutely. Completely everything. Just uh, waking up every single morning and I open my eyes and I'm like, yeah, man, I did it. <laughs> I got through the night, <laughs> literally just waking up. Um just waking up because there are many people that don't, they die in their sleep. They don't, mm. they don't wake up. That's how um, a lot of people would like to die. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I've thought about that too. That has been one of my, my top five ways to die <laughs> Okay, is to, is to just die in my sleep. What, what, um, what are the others? If you don't mind me asking. <laughs> well, being aware in bed, okay. you know, conscious, uh, and, and actually like feeling the slipping away. I, it's not, it makes, it gives me butterflies in my stomach when I think about it, but you know, I, I think that that's a way that I would like, um, then being in my sleep. Um, I don't really know any others that the others are just like place, like different locations that I would like to be. Like I, I would like to be in a forest I think that sounds good to me. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So for people who are listening to this, um, I mean, your book is very practical. It, it talks about very, very practical things in, in dealing with this. But since, since this is something that we will all have to um, deal with, not just for ourselves, but, for, you know, with loved ones, uh, which I think probably for most people is more upsetting, thinking about people they care about dying than themselves. I think that's probably pretty universal. Um, I would suspect, I mean, I don't know that for sure, but, um, what, what would your words be to people to kind of, well, let me put it this way. Maybe several episodes back, I interviewed Antero Ali, who is, um, um, who had been diagnosed with terminal cancer and decided not to do treatment. And so he, he was pretty okay with it, at least when we talked, um, and we opened up the interview where I just asked him, what is it, you know, what is dying like? I just went straight for it. And he said, we're, we're all dying, Jason. Um, so, you know, and, and other people have commented that I've read, you know, spirituality in a way, life in a way is a preparation for death. So 
what would you say to people in terms of um, living life or, you know, thinking about this ahead of time or like what are some healthy attitudes that people can adopt or healthy behaviors that people can adopt uh, just accepting and knowing that this is going to happen hmm. well <clears throat> i would encourage people to um to do a hospice volunteer training i think that um encountering the gentle kind deaths would be a very good thing for almost everybody to do. You know, some, there are some people who have had, <clears throat> pardon me, too much death in their life. And so, you know, it's not, it's not for everybody, but um, for those that have not had a traumatic experience, get closer to it. Like really, really go on in there, touch death, study about death smell death um becoming a hospice volunteer is incredible work so you can do the training and then you can decide if you actually want to put in the volunteer hours or not and i say definitely put in the volunteer hours you will get the experience of going in and out of people's houses that smell different look different um feel different and you'll see just how very differently people live that in itself is a really um eye-opening and humbling experience. Um, but to, to really get close to death in that way, you certainly can do a death doula training, but there's nothing like the hands-on experience. And uh, not everybody wants to have a pet, but pets are some of our best teachers they um first of all a pet death can be even more traumatic mm. and and um disruptive than a human death for some people um but our animals teach us a tremendous amount um and being willing to to work with that pet as they get old you can be a death doula for your dying dog or your dying cat and um you know euthanasia is an option for some people that have money and have means. Not everybody does. Um, wait, so that wait, I, can't... I, don't, I don't want to interrupt you, but euthanasia is something for people who have the money. Explain that, please. Like it's something you have to be able to afford euthanasia or what, what, what exactly did you mean yeah. by that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, a lot of people think that um, euthanizing your pet is the very kind thing to do to, to end your pet's life when they are close to death. And I always say yes. And um, first of all, just being a death doula for them and letting them live out the course of their life naturally without euthanasia is also an option. Just like for humans, they can live out their life. Um, it doesn't feel comfortable, but neither does tending for humans who mm -hmm. are dying. Mm -hmm. um, but euthanasia is, um, it's expensive and not everybody has means of bringing their pet to the vet. Hmm. There's the veterinary fee. There's the um, actual shot itself. Then there's the disposition of the body, whether you take it home with you or they take the body for cremation. Um, not everybody has uh, veterinary pet care that they can afford. So it is a privilege. Okay. okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I know you're short for time. So um, 
But I want to ask you one final question, which is if you could change anything about um, death and the death, the death industry in America, what would that be? Yeah, I, um, I would incorporate, well, basically our, our school system needs a total gutting and overhaul. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And, um, (laughs) and incorporated into that complete and total overhaul would be, um, death and life, just life cycle education. Hmm. Um, and, uh, to demystify the dying process, to give people a vocabulary, um, it doesn't mean that when a death comes, it's going to be any easier. It doesn't mean it's going to feel better or easier. It means that it's familiar and you have a vocabulary and you know that it's okay to talk about it because others have been talking about it. So I think that would be first and foremost. And I mean, that, that degree of healing that I think needs to take take place in our society we're talking generations and generations of recovery time Mm. yeah it it certainly struck me as you were saying that it's kind of like almost like our society forces people to deal with this alone and as if they're the only person dealing with it or will deal with it when everyone has to deal with it which is just crazy to me Um, you know they say it takes a village to raise a child but like okay well then how come they just shuffle they push you out under under the carpet when it's your time you know it's like well yeah 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 absolutely and it's um you know people hide their grief they hide their grieving there are many 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 different ways that grief shows up throughout people's lives but um it's not differentiated between you know the loss of a home the loss of a spouse the loss of your health the loss of um, a limb uh, or the loss of a human. It's, it's, um, no time, no space, like get back to work, deal with it on your own. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It creates a very pained society. I think so. Well, short of fixing all the world's problems, um, please, this was a wonderful conversation. Thank you very much for your time. Please tell the audience about uh, where they can find out more about you and where they can get your book. Thank you. Thanks so much. Um, I have uh, two websites which are eternally merging. <clears throat> so one is my first and last name together, annemariekeppel.com, and that's without the hyphen. And uh, also stardustmeadow.com. And one is more of my author site, and one is more my death doula training site. Uh, but it's, yeah, people can find me through those places. I'm on Instagram, you know, I do what I can to. <laughs> okay. Be present in the world. Uh, do you have an do you have, do you have an Instagram handle? Yes, it's Village Death Care. Village underscore Death Care. And the book is called Death Nesting. And I guess this is the second edition. I saw the first one is going for a ton of money. So get it while you can. All right. Um, thank you again. Thank you very much for that conversation and um, uh, and the scheduling issues. I think it was definitely uh, uh, happened in the right way at the right time. Perfect. Okay. Jason. All right. Lovely to meet you. Okay. Take care. Bye. 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 All right. Hope you really, really enjoyed that. I definitely had a lot of fun in that conversation. Meet us at magic.me, M A G I C K dot M E, my school for magic meditation, and mysticism, where you can learn all the skills you need to unleash 
your true self. I will see you in class. And until next time, hang in there.